Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined today by Reverend Dr. F. Douglas Powell Jr. Hello. It's great to be here, Lauren. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, let's see. Doug is an ador- Can I get it? See, I can- this is why I don't do long bios, Doug, because I can't get the words out correctly. Uh, Doug is an ordained elder in the Baltimore, Washington Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. Powell is, I said that wrong, Poe, excuse me, is committed to helping urban congregations in transition areas uh, flourish to community partnering. His research interests are church revitalization, urban theology, and Methodist theology. Dr. Poe, is that right? That's <laughs> correct. with that. <laughs> is the director of the Lewis Center for Church Leadership. Sorry, my brain is not working today. Uh, so, uh, Doug, what else would you like our listeners to know about yourself? Well, one thing many of my students know is that um, I'm originally from the state of Ohio, so I'm a huge Ohio State Buckeye fan. Mm. Of course, I'm very disappointed this year that yeah. we uh, lost to Alabama, but I'm um, looking forward to next year. But uh, college football season and watching the Buckeyes is my favorite time of the year. Right now, that is unclear because our quarterback, of course, is going to be entering the NFL draft. So it will be, um, it will be interesting to see who uh, takes over for quarterback at Ohio State next year. I'm confident, though, that we will have a solid quarterback uh, based upon we had people in the pipeline. You know, I watched the semifinal game, or at least some of it, with who they play, Clemson, right? Play Clemson, yes, and we beat them finally. Yeah, and I was I watched some of that game, and then when it came time to out watch the Alabama game, like I already know how this is going to turn out. I'm not going to watch. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it was a tough year. We were suffer. We had a uh, rough time with COVID all year yeah. long, so it was a tough year. No excuses though. They 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 beat us pretty badly. Yeah, yeah. That's a. Uh, it felt it, to me. It felt kind of the same way as the Super Bowl. Like, you know, same way like. Tom Brady's just not going to lose. Like, it's just not in the cards for Tom yeah. Brady to lose. Yeah, I um, lived in Missouri in the Kansas City area before moving here to the D.C. area. Mm. So um, even I'm, I'm a Browns fan, actually, mm. but I was cheering for the Chiefs. But I suspected Brady would win. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell, uh, tell our listeners a little about your, your journey of faith, uh, your, how, you, uh, how your faith looked like. Uh, how that formation looked like, and then kind of how that's developed today. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, grew up in the church, um, started off really going to uh, what almost would be considered a family church, uh, Church of God, uh, where I grew up in Kenton, Ohio, with uh, my aunt and uncle, my parents, 
and um, really have not known life uh, outside of the church um, in many ways. I, I have been formed um, by family and uh, pastors to uh, really sort of, and uh, I know we'll talk about this later, um, have an active prayer life, uh, study mm-hmm. scripture, and that has um, stuck with me through, throughout my life. When I went off to college, uh, my thought was that I would work in a business world, and I'm an econ management major from uh, mm. at Ohio Wesleyan University. Uh, mm-hmm. But while there, I almost accidentally minored in religion just because it's always been an interest of mine. So I would just take a class because I considered those my fun classes. <laughs> um, so I, when I did graduate, I did uh, work initially for a company called Principal Financial Group and then for Blue Cross Blue Shield in Ohio, but eventually got the uh, calling and went back to school at Candler School of Theology um, where I received my MDiv, and while there, was active at a congregation called Central United Methodist Church. Um, I stayed and did my PhD at Emory University and continued working uh, there at Central, and uh, just really enjoyed my, my time there. I then got a job in Kansas City, as I mentioned before, at St. Paul School of Theology, and actually was ordained in the Methodist Church in Missouri um, while I was at um, St. Paul. Um, enjoyed my time at St. Paul and the connections and getting to uh, work with the uh, congregations and people there. I was a part of a Centennial United Methodist Church, was my home church, but just given my role at the seminary, got to visit and uh, connect with many churches. And then moved here to D.C. and absolutely loved my work here at the Lewis Center, where it is my job to connect with churches and get to do that uh, sort of on a daily basis. So yeah. I'm excited about my work, um, excited about sort of that early formation and sort of returning back to it when I went back to school again. Yeah, awesome. Uh, what does that look like for you, returning back? Like what specifically has been really connected you to your your past there? Uh, the thing um, that has excited me, uh, sort of connected me, is that I've been able to use sort of the some of the, the things I learned um, and being an econ management major mm. and working out in the business world uh, before returning to seminary and now combining and integrating sort of my love of theology with some of those uh, practices at with the work I do at the Lewis Center. So that um, is sort of uh, what is exciting about what I'm doing now and how I've sort of pulled together a lot of my formation throughout my life. Very cool. Tell our listeners kind of about a spiritual practice, and you kind of hinted at some of those that's been meaningful for you or you might recommend to others. Yeah. Um, For me, it's always sort of uh, prayer uh, certainly has been critical and central uh, from the time I was young. I would say most recently during the pandemic, uh, John Wesley has these things called works of piety for those who Mm -hmm. are Methodist. Those aren't Methodists may not be as familiar. But under his works of piety, he has holy conversations. So conversations um, during the pandemic have uh, been a practice just because of 
not being able to connect with people necessarily always um, physically, and of course, getting tired of seeing everybody in little boxes on Zoom. <laughs> so it's nice to uh, yeah. just actually have conversations on the phone with individuals. So that that uh, I would say, if we're thinking of something sort of outside of the box, has been very life giving recently. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I would say like this is this podcast has kind of been a COVID project and it's been very life-giving to me for that, that same reason. Well, let's talk about your book. Uh, Doug is the author of the adept church navigating between a rock and a hard place. And, uh, I was telling Doug this before we got started. Uh, one of my good pastor friends in, in the Kansas city area actually, uh, used this book at his church and sent me a copy and I read it and loved it and like, Hey, I got to get, Gotta see if I can get Doug on here. Uh, so, tell tell our listeners kind of about the impetus of the book and what prompted its writing. Yeah, thank you, and uh, again, thank the pastor who, who yeah. used it in Kansas City. The impetus behind the book really is my observation um, over a period of time of how congregations really struggle to have a missional mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by that, uh, I talk about in the book, is that congregations really struggle to sort of uh, practically live out um, embodying sort of Christ to others in those concrete ways. They struggle to follow Jesus and to really develop that spirituality. You talk about spiritual practices. And they struggle to help people to really experience community in a new way and to point to the new thing. So, so those three things to me sort of form this idea of a missional mindset. And, and we are struggling today because congregations have sort of gotten stuck um, in this mm-hmm. sort of rut of uh, wanting to continue those things that are familiar and comfortable to them. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But the challenge is, of course... The culture continues to shift and Mm -hmm. people um, aren't always as connected to those things or don't understand why they should be connected to those things. So the key is helping congregations to sort of expand and think differently about uh, what is necessary for us to really have a missional mindset so that we are, once again, sort of connecting with individuals who, who I think really are seeking to have a community where they can feel yeah. connected and yeah. belong. But um, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard for them to see uh, church communities as that community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing just from listening to you that the, primarily the churches you work with are older established congregations. And I've heard it said this way a lot that for, for older, for older folks, so much culture there's so much cultural change and like the one place they can go that's the same is church and it can be really hard to get folks to want to change church because they're kind of last what last vestige or of a of a former life it is um and and i think that's correct and i and 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 i've heard that also and i often when i hear that um say what is interesting, however, is if we think about uh, the phone, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm telling yeah. my age here, you know, I grew up during a time where literally there was a rotary phone, right? Uh-huh. It was in the house. You had to literally put your finger in 
um, and dial the rotary phone. And then, of course, you moved up to the touch-tone phone. Um, when I came out of college and started working, I was fortunate that uh, I actually got one of the first uh, sort of car phones, those big uh, oh, wow. uh, yeah. Yeah, car t- phones, which most people uh, don't even know what they look like. My son started laughing when I showed him a picture of one uh, a, a while back. Um, and of course, today we have uh, phones that uh, almost operate like mini computers with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with our phones. But the thing that I point out is you can communicate no matter any of those devices. Yeah. It's still possible to communicate and talk with someone. So even though you had to adapt and use something that was different um, than you did previously, it did not prevent you from communicating um, with your family or friends. And I think it's um, helping the church to think about it in that way. Yes, you are going to have to do something different, and yes, things are going to change, and your phone can do more, but you still can talk to people. You haven't given that up. So it's not that you're necessarily giving everything up, but it is true you're still going to have to adapt to some new ways of seeing and doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, so speaking of analogy or metaphor I use in the book is the, the swamp reservoir or canal metaphor. So tell our listeners a little bit about that and how that fits into the concept of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a Howard Thurman uh, fan, mm-hmm. and Howard Thurman uses this metaphor to actually talk about individuals. Uh and I adapted this to think about congregations. And of course, when Thurman was writing, he was writing during a time when swamps were considered really creepy, yeah. ugly, yeah. sort of very nasty things. So um, today, we, because of ecology, we have a little bit different perspective. But if we can imagine mm-hmm. um, the swamp as that place you don't want to go, that's very scary, that you don't come back out of. Um, I describe swamp congregations as those very inwardly focused congregations where really, you know, they're going to die. They're, they're, they're literally rotting from the inside that, mm-hmm. that there's nothing, they're not life-giving congregations. They're there simply for survival for the people who currently are attending um, worship at the church. So, so swamp congregations are your congregations that are really struggling, don't have much life, and have very little connection with the community on the outside. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is the pandemic actually has helped swamp congregations. It actually forced them oh, interesting. Uh, to get out of their box yeah. because they had <laughs> to adapt and start doing some form of church by phone, yeah. Facebook, stream. They had to do something that, That's interesting. That utterly moved them out of their comfort zone. So, um, so it's interesting that in some ways the pandemic actually forced those congregations to huh. make a shift that they would not have made yeah. if it were not for yeah. the pandemic. Yeah, like online giving. How many right. congregations have gone yeah. to online giving because they had no other right. option? They had no other option. So, so the pandemic in that way actually helped swamp congregations. Now, my... My fear is, and reading others, is that many of these congregations are just going to resort back to what they did yeah. before the pandemic, which is unfortunate. But, but, um, but the pandemic did actually sort of force them to do something different. 
Mm -hmm. Second is a reservoir. Reservoir congregations, if you think about driving into a town where you see the sort of big ball in the air that holds the water supply of the town. So reservoir congregations have resources that they do share with others, um, and they act as a reservoir that you can sort of tap into those resources when needed. And typically, these congregations um, are willing to share through a pet ministry or uh, mm. sort of a pet project. And their idea is that they do want to make a difference in the community, but usually it's doing things for people in the community and not doing things with people in the community. So it's often a feeding ministry or a clothing closet where they will have people come to them and they will provide you know, the food or they'll provide the clothing for those individuals, but they're not really interested in the people joining them um, and being a part of who they are as a congregation. Uh, so an example of this would be a congregation I'm familiar with that um, actually would have been yesterday, uh, Fat Tuesday, where they had sort of the pancake breakfast getting ready mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. Lent and Ash Wednesday. Yeah. And they had a ministry of where they, for a week, would invite, um, these were men, individuals who would come and stay at the church so they wouldn't have to be out in the cold. Um, the church was their sort of home base to sleep for that week, and then they would move on to another church. Mm -hmm. It just happened to be that their week fell um, right bef uh, during the week of Ash Wednesday. But during mm -hmm. the pancake breakfast, uh, the idea was to invite them to come and have breakfast as a whole with the congregation. The congregation was sort of bucking at the idea, say, well, why don't we just feed them the pancakes downstairs <laughs> and then we'll go and do it. So, so the, the thought, the, the yeah. thing of the reservoir yeah. is they are helping, they're doing a ministry, but they, they really yeah. see as doing for people and don't see it as integrating the yeah. work that they're doing. So, so, so that's the reservoir. And then the canal, the canal congregation, if you think of a canal as a body of water that flows and other bodies of waters flow into it and it flows into other bodies of water. So ultimately it's trying to connect with as many people as possible is what a canal is doing. And that's what a canal congregation is doing. It truly is that congregation that is seeking to get outside of the building to make those important connections and to think about ministry in exciting in different ways. They're not you know, thinking we have to get you inside of our building. Mm -hmm. If we can do ministry down at your art studio yeah. and ha impact a lot of the people, we'll do it. But we could do ministry at the YMCA and impact a lot of the people, we'll do it. So their thought is, let's go to where the people are, let's have an impact there, and let's do this with one another and not do it for people. Um, so these congregations tend to be healthier and have a lot going on. The challenge, of course, is if you're a canal, to keep that going because once things start slipping, then you could start moving back to a reservoir mm -hmm. and to a swamp. And if you're a reservoir, you can move back to a swamp. What you really want are hopefully congregations going the other direction, taking the step either a swamp to a reservoir or a reservoir towards a canal. So these characteristics... Um, are used to frame, like most churches have a dominant characteristic, mm -hmm. but it also is used to say, think about ministry. So within a church, if you think about ministry, usually a ministry is a swamp, reservoir, or canal. So a church yeah, yeah. could have a swamp ministry, a reservoir ministry, and a canal ministry. So the thought is if we can even move that ministry forward, it's going to help the church overall 
um, to continue to flourish and thrive. So, so that gives sort of a brief overview of uh, the Swamp Reservoir and Canal. I think that's a really helpful metaphor because like, I can't remember where it was, but you kind of talk about in the book um, like the importance of how evaluating different ministries like has how like a reservoir can slip into because I mean I'm not an ecologist or whatever the person is that studies bodies of water but my guess is like there's some like flow of water in a reservoir to some extent and if there's not a flow of water like that's when things again we understand you know in the going with that kind of image of the swamp is where things are dying. I mean, ultimately new life is bringing coming forth of a swamp. And we could say that same thing in a church. Like we believe that in resurrection as Christians and ultimately a new life has come. But I mean, it's, it's something's going to die for what was in, in current, I guess we might say, but it's, it's a great uh, image though. Uh, and metaphor of evaluating churches and, and ministries for that context. Uh, something else you write about. And I thought, was the importance of objectivity and leaders holding up the mirror, uh, holding up the mirror to those ministries in a church and trying to be objective. Talk more about that if you can, what that looks like, how hard it can be, and maybe what some of that that resistance is. Absolutely. So, so the, the, the thought is, is that um, if you read uh, Romans chapter 12, uh, particularly verse 3, and it's sort of uh, here Paul's talking about sort of holding up the mirror um, so you can sort of actually see um, who you are, so to speak. And I'm playing off of that and, and saying that this is what we need to do in congregations, that we need to hold up that mirror and really take a hard look at ourselves um, and what we're doing. And the challenge of that, of course, um, tends to be twofold. When we hold up the mirror, we can celebrate ourselves and mm-hmm. say how wonderful we are and how great everything is, but the reality is that's not true. That, yeah. that we're, we're, we're lying to ourselves yeah. as we look in the mirror. Sort of like I look in the mirror and say, man, look at me. I'm just as slim and trim as they come. Well, that, that is not true, <laughs> right? So, so, so we're lying to ourselves when we do that. The other is we can look in the mirror and we can be overly critical of mm-hmm. ourselves. Yeah, we can yeah. talk about this, how bad and how awful and nothing's going right. And, and that's, that's not helpful and, and often that is not right either. The key is to look in the mirror and to actually be honest and to see those places where we're struggling and to see those places where, where we're doing well. And then that can help us to evaluate then is this a swamp ministry? Is this a reservoir? Is this a canal? And then we can start thinking about if it's a reservoir, that usually means what we're doing is that we're, we're leaning too much to doing things for people and we're not really involving them and thinking about them as being a part of who we are. So now yeah. we know what we need to do to work on that and can make decisions to actually alter that, hopefully to move it towards a canal. But if we don't look in a mirror, if we're not honest with ourselves, then we can't get there. And I think too often congregations fall to one extreme or the other. We either celebrate and think everything's perfect, yeah. or we're overcritical yeah. and, and, you know, everything is horrible. But it's, it's hard to look and be really honest. Yeah. Well, you, you talked about decision-making, and that's the next thing I want to ask you about. Um, 
So I love this quote in your book. You say, most people have no clue what is required. Uh, so talk about decision-making and congregational decision-making, how that fits in and, and what needs to happen, should happen, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Congregational decision-making it is very challenging because um, one, what typically happens is that uh, somebody will come up with an idea or somebody will say, this is the way we should move. And then it gets talked about in committee and people say whether they like it or they don't like it. But what in most cases does not happen is sort of a criteria for how we go about the decision-making process, hmm. right? Okay. And, and what I'm sort of arguing for is developing that criteria. And key to that criteria to, that I'm suggesting and others have suggested also is, is what is your church's mission statement? Hmm. You know, if your church's mission statement is to sort of care, connect, um, and whatever else it may be with people, then that should be the place that you start in terms of does this decision make sense for what we're trying to do? And, and in doing that, it can't just be inwardly sort of for the people there, but it also has to reflect does it make sense in terms of outward? Because most, most of our missions, even if we are a swamp, have an element of being outwardly focused, even if we ignore it. But yeah. if we use that in our decision-making process, then we'd be asking, you know, if we are doing this, is that actually going to help us to fulfill that part of the mission and be outwardly focused? Or are we simply doing something that, again, is going to keep us happy, contained within these walls and do nothing that is going to help us to connect with people um, outside of our door? So, so starting with the mission statement is critical. Now, I'm guessing, uh, Doug, I'm guessing you probably worked with a lot of churches where they couldn't even tell you what the mission statement was, right? <laughs> there are definitely some who cannot tell you what their mission statement is. And, and of course, in that case, then you're really starting at ground zero, yeah. either um, helping people to rediscover what the mission is mm -hmm. or doing the work of really thinking about, okay, what, what is our mission? What is it that we are claiming we're about as we try to make an impact on people's lives? Um, in this community. So, so yeah, you, you often do find a case where some do not have a clue. Fortunately, many do, but they usually just have it and, and it just stays there, uh, make it printed on the bulletin, but it's yeah. not really used yeah. in any formal way. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was watching um, a video recently on leadership and the, the presenter talked about the importance of providing, they use the word guardrails, um, but they, they made it like, they said it in a way, like when people have guardrails, that's when people flourish. Uh, and I think it makes sense. Cause it's the idea of like, when we have like no boundaries, it's like kids, I have young kids. Like when, when you have, when kids have no boundaries, they kind of just go crazy bonkers. Uh, but when there's guardrails, uh, people can have a, find a lot of, it may, f there's, yeah, it's restricting in some way, but people can find a lot of fulfillment and Plenty to do within those guardrails. Yeah? Absolutely. And, and, and the, the reality is, is you can always make a decision that we're going to alter the guardrails. Sure, right? sure. I yeah. mean, but, but at least it gives you a starting point for, mm -hmm. you know, 
does this make sense for us? Because it gives you at least a criteria for thinking about it um, and for how it's going to impact the work you do together as a congregation. So, so yeah, I think um, that image can be very helpful, uh, particularly because, like I said, you can, you can decide, hey, you know, in this case, we think we need to remove these guardrails because this opportunity requires us to do something different. Um, and, and, you know, you have that flexibility to do so. Yeah. Um, this is a silly example, but I think it, I think it fits like, like I've, I've used the illustration, like caring for dolphins is a great cause, like making sure dolphins don't get slaughtered or fished or whatever, but that's not necessarily fit within the mission of most churches, right? That's correct. That's right. Yes, you're absolutely right that, that for most churches, um, particularly if you don't happen to be near a body of water (laughs) where dolphins are. You would you could possibly send money, yeah. which is not a horrible thing, but it would be harder to have a, yeah. a direct impact uh, on that. There are other things closer to home, mm-hmm. even caring for dogs in your community. That sure. probably would make a lot more sense, sure, um, given your location. So yeah, that that example absolutely works. Now, uh, something here that I I thought was really interesting. This is more on a practical level. You talk about the importance of evaluating decisions annually, uh, and like this seems, I mean, uh, you and I serve in mainline Protestant contexts. I mean, for a mainline context, it seems pretty bold. In evangelical non-denom world, it's probably like it happens regularly. Um, but this this might seem like harsh or strict to some. Uh, and I want to kind of tag it to this other line that falls later on the page where you talk about the church is not a business. But churches can learn from successful businesses the importance of evaluating what is and is not working. Right. Yeah, so let me start there. If you think about um, most businesses, and I'm going to use uh, Mm -hmm. Coca-Cola in Atlanta. Um, Some people will remember this. Um, Coca-Cola got this brilliant idea that they were going to come out with new Coke, right? And, you know, this new Coke was going to be great. This is everything. Everybody's going to drink it. Um, And, of course, it flopped. But, you know, what Coca-Cola did is they are always evaluating their, you know, who's drinking the product, you know, where is it, where is it in terms of our old product. And what they figured out pretty quickly is new Coke was not ever going to, be something that was going to get any market share and hit. Um, now, we in the church aren't thinking of market share and mm-hmm. things of that way, but we should still be thinking of the process of we should be evaluating when we do something to say, hey, we started this new ministry, and what we're finding out, at least in its current form, it's just not working. It's not having the impact that we thought that it would. So we either need to adjust the ministry or we may need to rethink this and try something different. What we tend to do in the church is that once we start something, we just let it keep going and going and going and never do anything. And it's 10 years down the road and we're still doing the same thing, trying to get people to say, hey, we need somebody to come and chair this ministry. You know, we, we need a leader instead of thinking about, well, let's, Let's evaluate. Let's really think about, is this ministry accomplishing what we hoped it would accomplish? Yeah, and it's almost like, what, is that, what does that ministry do? We don't know, but yeah. we just need someone to, to, to chair that committee yeah. or whatever. That's right. 
So uh, this is interesting. Again, this was like my favorite chapter in the book. Um, you're right that adept, adept, I can't say the word, adept congregations are not beholden to sustaining a pet ministry just because it is started by a founding member. Uh, and you talk about four steps of adept congregations to evaluating ministries. Can you talk more about those four steps? Yeah, so there uh, you're, you're referring to where I talk about sort of um, congregations starting with discernment. Mm-hmm. And um, the key of discerning um, sort of, is this really a ministry that makes sense for us at this point in time? Um, and too often we don't do that discernment process. And it may be in the discerning process, again, what, what comes to light is, um, you know, we're called to adapt this ministry to look differently than it does now. But, but if we never do discernment, that doesn't happen. And by discernment, I'm suggesting it's not like uh, just a pastor saying, hey, this is what we need to do. <laughs> but it's the, the community. Mm-hmm. Um, discerning as a whole with this ministry um, can be or altering it to something else and really listening for how God will speak to them about the ministry. And, and, and then it's sort of um, talking about, does this connect with our mission and with the community? Mm-hmm. So again, with a, a ministry, if you have a, a feeding ministry, um, is this really connecting with our mission, and is it really connecting with the community, or is this just something that makes us feel good, right? Uh, it's just, you know, we can say, hey, look, look at what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so, so the next step is really to think about that, that connection, and is, is it really working? And then it's uh, evaluation. So that's where we just talked about mm-hmm. you, you really start thinking about, okay, we're trying this, now let's evaluate and see if we really are making the impact that we thought, um, or are we not making that impact? And finally, the last one, um, which sometimes surprises people, is forming good habits. So, so when we do this work, we start forming good habits because what we're doing then is not simply getting stuck in that something will last forever, mm-hmm. but we know that we're going to be going through this process of really looking at is this something that's having the impact that we hope? And this forms the good habits of helping us to continually um, be willing to sort of alter and adapt things so that we can become sort of an adept church. Um, and I think what it does is it gets us out of this thought that just because we start something, it has to stay that way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, we form a habit of, hey, we're willing to change something or we're willing to give it up if we don't think it's doing what we thought it would do. Yeah. I was thinking about that kind of, uh, if I'm remembering the right scientific word of the, um, what is it? Like when something's in motion, it's, it's harder to stop it. And same thing, like when something's not in motion. Right, yes. I'm blanking on the scientific term, but I think you you got the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm with you what you're talking about. Give, uh, maybe give, you know, I've been in that context, and I'm sure some of our listeners have, where you're you're trying to move what feels like a, you know, an impossible rock up the hill. Give some advice for a pastor or leader, um, you know, 
what are some some practical ways and maybe some some attitudes and, and so not just like stuff they need to do but also like internal stuff that needed they need to work within themselves to be better prepared for this kind of leadership yeah i i would say internally of course this is very challenging right i mean that that's and i try to be honest about this in the book i'm like you know it, it's it's not going to be um, hey, I'm just going to wake up and take this swamp yeah. congregation. We're going to be a canal. I mean, yeah. that that is just unlikely and, and will probably not happen. So it's, it's hard work. Uh, um, it's frustrating work mm-hmm. because even if the pastor is excited and passionate, oftentimes the people are happy where they are, um, <laughs> yep. and that can be very frustrating for yep. a pastor. But at the same time, I, I think you get the glimpses of where you can see possibilities and things happen. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what makes it exciting and why we continue to do this. In terms of um, something very practical, what I um, often suggest is I think we have to think not in terms of moving the rock, <laughs> but think about a pebble. Right. Mm. So, so if, if we can take just a small piece of something and the likelihood of getting everybody or even consensus is probably not going to happen. But if I can get two or three people uh, then thinking of scripture mm-hmm. to say, hey, let us, you know, we, we, we know we're going to keep doing these things over here. But would you all work with me? We're going to take this pebble and yeah. we're going to move it and try something That's different. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And you can get two or three people to do that with you. Then what happens is when you all start actually making something happen, other people are going to join in. Mm-hmm. And that's when you can actually have an impact of change. I think it's harder to do that because it takes a little bit more patience. But... The other way, I think, what often happens is we just get so frustrated because you're just you, you literally are trying to push a big rock and it keeps rolling back on you. Yeah. Right. Instead yeah. of saying, you, you know, I'm not going to try to move that whole rock. I'm just going to start with this pebble, and I'm going to start just with a couple of people. And it might be that we can only do this little small thing, but if we can get that started, that at least gets something moving in the right direction. Oh, that's really that's so good. That's so good. Uh, the the adept church folks. Uh, We'll give uh, I'll have Doug give some links afterwards to how we can get it. But the Adept Church, highly recommend it. Uh, let's take a break and we'll move on uh, to some closing questions. Hi there, my name is Brian Davis, and I'm the host of the podcast Chasing Sunday, a show that talks to worship leaders and other church creatives about the pain, frustration, and joys they face as they work in the relentless world of producing art for churches 52 Sundays a year. It's a show about burning out and burning bright. Together, we talk about how we can find a healthier and more creative alternative to chasing Sunday after Sunday. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All right, we're back with Reverend Dr. F. Douglas Poe. I got Junior, if I got that right. <laughs> I'm yes. always paranoid to get people's names right. Uh, so, Doug, I always tell people you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day. You know, that that is actually a really good question. Uh, if I were Pope for a day, I think given um, where we are in this country currently, it would be really interesting to have congregations to have 
serious dialogue around race issues. Mm. Um, I, I mean, if there is a place where we should be able to have an impact, it should be the church, but it would require really some serious dialogue for it to happen. So if I were Pope for the day, I would have all congregations really to have these discussions um, so that we hopefully could have some sort of transformation. Good, good. Uh, a a historical theologian or Christian figure you you would want to meet or bring back to life? That person um, would be James Cone. Um, mm. He's, you know, not as historical, of course, as uh, many that you could name, but um, Cone yeah. passed um, recently, um, but still just, uh, and, and I knew him, but, but just a wonderful individual um, and just uh, learned so much from him and from his work. So if there's somebody I could bring back, it would be James Cone. I should ask you this then. Uh, I remember having this discussion on social media maybe a year ago, like the most influential or maybe important theologian of the 20th century. I was, I, I said James Cone. I mean, I, I'm guessing you're biased and would probably lean that direction too. Yeah. I am biased. So, so, so yes. I mean, there are, man, there are so many people you can argue yeah. uh, for the most influential, but, and you can make great arguments for all of them, but yes, I'm very biased in this case. So that would be, that would be tough for me to answer. Yeah. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? That's an interesting question. I think um, a couple of things. I mean, for certain, um, history is going to sort of remember that we have suffered great loss Mm -hmm. during this time. Uh, um, And I'm speaking of the pandemic, of course. I mean, so there's been great loss. But I also think what we will see, particularly as it relates to the church, is that history is going to see how the church was able to sort of pivot in some ways and still be a place that actually um, made an impact on the lives of people and helped people during this very challenging time. So that that piece of it for me, I think, um, is also important. So in the midst of this great loss, the church has still been there um, even though it hasn't been there in the traditional way that it would think of being there sort of physically and in person in many cases, but, but has found ways to still be with people and walk with them um, through these troubling times. So, so I think you're going to see both of those things reflected um, when people look back during, on this time. That's awesome. I like that. Uh, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity? My hope is that we will actually sort of become individuals that are pursuing um, what it means to participate in God's work and not pursuing what it means to strictly just build congregations Hmm. to fill seats. Hmm. Um, You know, because I think those are two different things. Yeah. They can be compatible, and there are yeah. times where they will be compatible, but there are times where it is going to be this sort of small groups of people getting the work done, but they're pursuing God's work. So my hope is we will truly pursue God's work. Boy, it, that's it's such a tough one, too. I can't remember where I was reading this, um, but the author talked about... Um, 
I think the use of the term poverty gospel and prosperity gospel, and you know we are we're all familiar with the the prosperity gospel idea that like blessings automatically come from God. But the other hand can be the poverty gospel where I'm suffering because I am more faithful and how easy it can be to fall into either camp. Uh, That's right. Those extremes again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, where can people find out more about you and get a copy of your book? Yeah, they can find out more about me at churchleadership.com churchleadership.com once you go to the website hit the about button and you can find out more about me and you'll be able to get a copy of the adept church if you go to uh, cokesbury um go to cokesbury and they'll have it up or of course you can go to everybody's favorite online place <laughs> amazon um, will, and also go to, i will put a link to cokesbury in the show yeah. notes to support our publishers yeah so so yeah, that's right. That that that's great. But yes, e- either place. Uh, thank you so much, Doug. The book is the Adept Church. Highly recommend it. It's a short read. Uh, it's an easy read, and uh, he's got some good stuff in there. So, Doug, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoy the conversation, and uh, may God's peace be with you. I appreciate it, and thank you for inviting me. This has been great. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor. Subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace.